Man, what a great day to be alive in Austin, Texas. You know, it is, we're going to dive into the message today because we got a lot to cover. In the words of one great theologian, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So I want to pick up where we started off last week. You remember we started this series, Clarity in the Chaos, with the understanding that we've had a lot of, of chaos in 2020. Think about this. Less than seven months ago, you didn't even know the words Tiger King. Isn't that amazing? Tiger King feels like it was three years ago. That was just seven months ago. There's been a lot of just chaos and clutter and noise. Fortunately, we've got people around us who are helping us try to get our arms around this. We're learning how to deal with this, how to bring clarity in the chaos. Our very own Fearless Mom Ministry posted something just a couple of weeks ago that I think kind of captures the essence of 2020. Look at it with me. If 2020 was a math problem, it would be this. If you're going down a river at two miles per hour and your canoe loses a wheel, how much pancake mix would you need to reshingle your roof? I think that pretty much captures where we are, don't you? But it's not just us. It's not, it's not just everyday folks. 2020 has been hard on celebrities. Even people at the top of the socioeconomic ladder are struggling to, to deal with 2020. I saw this this week. 2020 has been a difficult year. Share. I got to tell you, when I saw that this week, I spit coffee out of my nose. That was the funniest thing I've seen in forever. But I digress. It has been quite a year. But as we looked at last week, 2020 really hasn't ushered in anything new per se. It actually really just kind of crystallized some of the cultural currents that were percolating just under the surface. And so for us, it's imperative that we learn, that we know how to, to separate and sift fact from fiction, reality from unreality. And if you'll remember, I kind of introduced this idea last, last week of the, the life cycle of thoughts, ideas, and, and how you look at the world. Let me, let me pull this chart back up again for us. Thoughts, feelings, and ideas. That was where we kind of started last week. And we said that thoughts, feelings, and ideas can come from anywhere. Now, before we dive into the chart here this morning, I want you to know it's imperative that we remember kind of our guiding light. We said at the very beginning last week that Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 15 would be our kind of our touchstone throughout this series. Ephesians 4, 14 through 15 says this, then we will no longer be immature like children. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell them, don't be immature. We will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. This is our goal, that we will speak we will know, first of all, but then we will speak the truth in love. And it's against this backdrop that we have to kind of 
get intentional. We have to be deliberate about what actually goes on in our minds. Our minds are so, so powerful. They, they can do so, so much, maybe good, maybe not, but we've gotta be deliberate about what happens between our ears. As we said last week, thoughts and feelings and ideas can come from anywhere. I remember when I was in the fourth grade, we took an overnight field trip from Houston, where I grew up, here to Austin. And as part of the field trip, we got to tour the state capitol in downtown Austin. And we went on the tour, we saw all the statues downstairs and went into the chambers for the Senate and the House and, and saw all of the documents and all of the artwork and all that kind of stuff. Well, when the tour of the state capitol was finished, they told us that we had 20 minutes before we had to be back on the bus. And so we could go anywhere in the state capitol we wanted to. And so all of my fourth grade buddies and I, we made a beeline for the stairwell and we ran all the, well, we kind of ran walked. You remember when you were a kid and you would run but you didn't want to act like you were running so you ran walked? Well, we ran walked up the stairs to go to the absolute highest point in the rotunda of the state capitol because we were just that cool. And we got up. The very, very, very tippy-top level was, was blocked off, and we were deeply disappointed. But on the next-to-top level, we all ran to the railing, and then we looked down. And I remember having this thought as clearly as I'm standing here today. I remember this. I thought this. This was the thought that came into my head. What if I had an involuntary spasm and jumped? I would die. I, I was just standing on that mosaic in the bottom of the rotunda floor. I know that's hard floor. And, and I had this thought. And so in my own little fourth grade mind, I had this little mini panic attack. And I just kind of slowly backed away. I heard my friends at the railing going, you spit. No, you spit. <laughs> Nobody spit that I remember. I feel like I would have remembered that. But I just, I backed away from the railing and I just, I just went down the stairs. It's like, what if I had jumped? Now, I told you that to tell you this. I don't know if spontaneous spasms are even a thing. But I had that thought, and it put some very real fear in my heart, in my life. I wonder this morning if maybe on a much higher intellectual level than a fourth grader in the state capitol, can you connect with thoughts or feelings or ideas that just kind of come into your mind but give you fear, they make you pause, they make you hold back, I think it's against that backdrop that we get to kind of really and truly unpack this. Let me just very quickly review what we talked about last week because we're going to expand on it. We're going to tease this out a little bit more. If you have these thoughts, feelings, and ideas, they start, they can come out of nowhere. They can come just poof into your brain. They may come from your family of origin. They may come from the people you hang out with, the stuff that you read, watch, listen to, whatever. They just happen. But you have to then filter thoughts, feelings, and ideas through the filter of truth. Truth becomes the filter that we take these thoughts and feelings and ideas. The Bible says that we are to take every thought. Say every. Every. Every thought captive to Christ. We take these thoughts, these feelings, these ideas captive to Christ and we filter them through the grid of truth. I'm going to come back to this at length in a, just a minute. 
But sometimes when we filter them through truth, we can go, that's not real. That's not true. And you can eject a thought or feeling or an idea. But if it makes it through the filter of truth, then that then becomes our beliefs. Those thoughts, feelings, and ideas that filter through truth become our beliefs. Those are the things that are our convictions. These are the things that we build our life on. We anchor our life in. And it's out of our beliefs that we make decisions. Decisions, the choices that we make. I want to ask you to do me a favor. This is going to be kind of fun, okay? I want everybody to stand up just for a quick second. If you're watching online, go ahead and stand up and play along at home. We make a staggering number of decisions every week, every single week, every single day. If you think that we make a thousand or fewer choices a day, sit down. A thousand choices a day. Okay. 5,000 choices a day. Sit down. Thank you for your honesty. Some of y'all are just going to stay standing until you're right. I know how this gets played. Okay. 10,000 choices a day. 10,000. That's 10,000. That's exhausting, isn't it? All right, RD. Okay. 20,000 choices a day, sit down. The bold and the beautiful now. It's a war of attrition. 25,000 choices a day. 30,000 choices a day. I'm just curious, what was your number? 27,800? Everybody, you may have a seat. The number is 35,000 choices a day you and I make, decisions that we make. Now, not all of these decisions are, are manifestations of our belief system and worldview, but they all impact every single part of our lives. As a matter of fact, it's out of the decisions that we make that our life radiates. It is the choices and the decisions that we make that comprise the sum total of our lives. Now, as you think about this life cycle, this life cycle of thoughts and feelings and ideas, what I want to show you today is that there is actually a massive range of options that are available to us, a massive range. On one hand, there is the opportunity to approach this from a human perspective, a, a, a humanity-centered view. This would be the, the secular humanist. This would be the person who says that humanity is the center of the universe. On the other hand, there is the Christian worldview, the Christ-centered approach to the life cycle of thoughts, feelings, and ideas. Now, as we go through this, I want to compare and contrast these two opposing Worldviews, these two opposing belief systems. And, and I want to say this right up front. When we talk about human versus Christ, let me be very, very clear. We ascribe to, we hold to, we strive for a Christian worldview as a Christian church. You may want to write that down. That's really profound. But that's not to say that nothing good happens on the human side. There, there is a lot of good that comes out of this. There are 
very, very nice, kind people who believe this, but it stands in stark contrast to our belief system that flows out of a Christ-centered, biblical worldview. In a human worldview, truth is relative. Truth is relative in that human-centered, humanistic worldview. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. You can believe whatever you want to believe in this worldview, but just don't tell me I'm wrong. Now, as we talked about last week, relativism does not stand up philosophically or intellectually. It can't bear the weight of its own beliefs because if you believe that truth is relative, that truth is always changing, then to say that no truth is absolute is itself a statement of absolute truth. So it, it, it implodes on itself. In a Christ-centered worldview, truth is absolute. Truth is absolute. And it's imperative that we understand our understanding of truth is never absolute or perfect. We're imperfect creatures doing the best we can with what we've got to work with. But a Christian worldview does believe that there is an absolute truth, physically, scientifically, spiritually, morally, and it's our job to understand that to our best ability. Don't ever believe that the Christian faith requires you to check your brain at the door. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, strength, soul, and mind. You best be bringing your brain is the original translation of Jesus' words, is you have to use your brain. You have to use your mind. So if you're a student, maybe you're in middle school, high school, or, or in college now, or one day when you go to college, don't ever feel like you have to back up intellectually or philosophically to any other worldview or to any, any professor or teacher who wants to belittle your faith or beliefs. The Christian worldview stands up. That's part of why we're doing this is because I believe that the next generation needs this ammunition to speak the truth in love, but to know that what we believe stands the test intellectually, philosophically. As a matter of fact, I believe that the Christian worldview actually holds the most water of any worldview, any belief system that's out there. So truth really, really matters. We're going to come back to that. In a human-centered worldview, our beliefs are, they're, they're out there, but they're, they're not really necessarily, they're, they're fluid. They're, because truth is relative, your beliefs can ebb and flow. You can believe this one day, believe that the next. Our culture is rampant with fluid beliefs. We'll get into that in a little bit, but... Our beliefs are fluid. Under a Christian worldview, our beliefs, our touchstones, those things are fixed. For example, the resurrection of Jesus. That is a fixed belief. That, that's a hill on which we will die. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that anchors every other thing that we believe. Our beliefs are fixed. Now, again, our understanding may ebb and flow. It wasn't that long ago historically that the world, the leading scientists, the leading technologists on the planet believed that said planet was flat. Think about that. It, 
everybody except Christopher Columbus believed the world was flat. Everybody, even Kyrie Irving today, thinks that the world is flat. If you don't know Kyrie Irving, don't sweat it. He's not one of the leading technologists or scientists in the world. Great ball player, but not a leading scientist. So when people say science is real, of course it's real, but it's limited. Science is not omniscient. There is a lot of science that we don't understand. Surely we don't have the arrogance to think that in 2020 we understand everything scientifically. It requires a little humility on both sides of the equation. Our beliefs are fixed. In a human-centered worldview, our decisions are situational. They're situational. Our ethics become situational because our beliefs are fluid. And so we kind of ebb and flow with the times, the fads, what's going on, how we feel. But in a Christ-centered worldview, our decisions are principled because we rely on the truth of Scripture and the principles that are contained in there that God has given us as an act of grace and truth. Our decisions, hopefully and prayerfully, are principled. They're consistent. As a Christian, we would say, we're going to do the right thing and let the chips fall where they may. So it's an important thing. Now, this is important. The end game of the human or the humanist worldview, the end game of life is happiness. That, that's, that's the goal is, is to be happy. And I'm not minimizing happiness. Happiness is a good thing. You know why I know that? Because we know that God is a good God. Yesterday, I was in the living room watching football, being very sad. And from another room, I heard my wife, Julie, laughing. Now, I love Julie more than peanut butter and jelly. I, I love Julie. But when I hear her laugh, that feeds my soul. Like, it, it makes me smile to hear Julie laugh. If I hear one of our kids, like, like deep down soul laughing, I'm good. And I am a most imperfect husband and father. I got to feel like God who is love, God who knows the number of hairs on your head, when we are truly happy, I think that makes God happy. But, everybody say but. but. Happiness in and of itself is not enough to build our lives around. You will never, ever meet someone who makes happiness their goal who experiences it. If you're striving for happiness, you'll never get there. The Christian worldview, the end game, the goal of life is holiness, is holiness. That verse in Ephesians 4, we will become more and more like Christ. We never become a God or we never become a Christ, but we become more and more like him. The Bible calls this process sanctification. We are being sanctified. We're on the way, but we have not arrived. Tell your neighbor with a smile on your face, you haven't arrived. But that, that end game of holiness, happiness is always striving. You, you never quite get there. It's the, next, it's the next promotion. It's the next hot date. 
It's the next marriage proposal. It's the next house. It's the next child. It's never enough. Whereas with holiness, if you strive for holiness to glorify and honor God, you will experience a fulfillment that you cannot even describe. Now, as you look at this, you, you can tell where, where kind of the linchpin or the keystone of this is. It all comes back to truth. It co- what you say, what I say is truth, really becomes the keystone of our worldview. The keystone, if you're building an arch out of stones, the keystone is that part in the very top and center of the arch. The keystone is what supports the arch. It is what gives it its architectural strength and integrity. If you remove the keystone from an arch, the arch falls in on itself. Truth is the keystone of our lives. Truth is the keystone of our world view. So what we say about it, what we do with it, is critical. And for the Christian worldview, the keystone is Scripture. The keystone is the Word of God. All of the Christian faith radiates out of the person and personality of Jesus. Therefore, His Word, the Bible, is authoritative. His Word, the Bible, is reliable. Now, there are some, there are some valid and legitimate reasons to question the Bible. I think questioning is a good thing. I don't think God ever says, don't even question, don't doubt, just just blind faith. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I think God invites our questioning. The first reason to question Scripture, sincere curiosity or even skepticism. If you're skeptical, that's okay. Ask the question. This is exactly what led C.S. Lewis to become a follower of Christ. C.S. Lewis was one of the brightest minds of the 20th century, a scholar and, early in life, an atheist. But what C.S. Lewis did was he, he had the intellectual integrity to do the legwork and to do the homework and investigate the claims of Christ, the claims of the Christian faith, and not just parrot you know, all of the hackneyed old atheist stuff that he heard from other people. He said, I'm going to do my own homework. And when he did his own homework, he discovered and determined that the claims of Christ hold up over time, that the claims of the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, the claims of Scripture are absolutely reliable. Now, there's a second reason to to question or, or maybe even to reject the Bible. And I think we've got to be honest about this one. It's what I call masked self-interest. You see, as as a human being, as, as somebody who likes to chart his own course and determine his own destiny, listen, I I have no trouble being human-centered, self-centered. And when I'm in that place, then the Bible becomes really inconvenient in spaces. We talked about this last week. You know, sometimes we read the Bible looking for loopholes, (laughs) you know? But masked self-interest, a lot of times people raise objections. They reject Scripture, not because of any intellectual homework that they've done, but just because they don't want to submit their lives 
to the will and the word of God. And I want to just suggest to you that that's, that's a choice that you can make, no question. But it's not the same thing as sincere curiosity and skepticism. It's just veiled, masked self-interest. Mark Twain said famously, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. It's, it's what the Bible says about me that I understand. If you've got your Bible, look in Psalm chapter 33. Psalm chapter 33 says this. For the word of the Lord holds true, and we can trust everything he does. He loves whatever is just and good. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. We can trust the word of the Lord. You might have heard before, where there is no vision, the people perish. A lot of companies, a lot of teams, a lot of churches have used this over time. And it happens to be a biblical truism. It's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Proverbs 29, 18 in the King James Version says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, the King James Version of the Bible was published in the year 1611 under the reign of King James I of England. And the King James Version was one of the first translations of Scripture into the English language out of the Old Testament Hebrew and Aramaic and the New Testament Greek. And as you might imagine, the English language has evolved a little bit in the last, oh, I don't know, 400 years. So when it says where there is no vision, the people perish, it's not so much about a, a, an idea or a goal that people rally around. It's actually more about divine revelation. That, that's the more accurate translation for where we live day in and day out. This is how the New Living Translation translates that same verse. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. When people do not accept divine... Doesn't that just kind of have the ring of authenticity? Doesn't that just have the ring of truth and reality to it? When we don't accept guidance from God, we run wild. We cast off restraint, some translations say. We live 2020 lives. That's, that's the reality. But when we accept divine guidance, we, we come back to that thing which God has given us, his word, and we bring it into our lives as he intended, as a love letter to us, to show us how to live. Francis Schaeffer was a theologian of the 20th century. He wrote a book entitled, This Then is How We Should Live. This then is how we should live from a biblical worldview, from a, from a biblical place. It's hard. It's, it's tough to, to get our minds around it, but it's imperative. As we live in 2020, we manage a global pandemic. We manage our emotions through a challenging Cowboys and Longhorns football season. We watch the news. We make political choices and decisions. We engage 
in the political process because of the privilege we have to have a voice in it, it's imperative for all of these things that comprise life that we live that we come back to this idea of truth, that we come back to the reality of Jesus Christ permeating every part of our lives. Man, I don't know. What, what, if I, what if I choose to trust Scripture? What if I choose to trust God and he's not there? That's, that's, a, that's a great question to ask. I, again, I would encourage you to question, seek, ask the hard questions of the Christian faith. I want to share with you Jeremiah chapter 29. In Jeremiah 29, the Bible says something so profound. Jeremiah 29, this is a promise from God. God is speaking here in Jeremiah 29. He says, in those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I don't know where you are today. But I want to encourage you, and just as a friend, I want to challenge you. Look wholeheartedly. Don't, don't just dip your toe in it. Don't just... Don't just parrot some smokescreen argument against religion that you've heard from somebody else, but you haven't had the integrity to do the homework yourself. Look for him wholeheartedly. The Bible says, taste and see that he is good. He's good. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. Whether you're here in the room or you're watching online as part of our church family, in this moment, I want to make sure that you understand a Christ-centered worldview, belief system, whatever you want to call it, a Christ-centered worldview is a subset, it is a product of a relationship with Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17, Jesus himself said, this is eternal life, the life that is truly life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent to know him means that you have a relationship with him, that you've chosen to respond to his grace initiative and that you're following him, trusting him more than you trust yourself or anyone else. If you're here today or maybe you're watching online, and you've never taken that step to 
definitively and personally respond to his grace and truth? Why not right now? Just right where you are, pray. Just pray silently, talking to God. And just silently say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I ask you to come into my life. And I will follow you. I will trust you more than I trust myself. Jesus, I choose to believe that you are the truth, the way and the life. And so I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back in order to claim your forgiveness, all of it. And I pray this prayer in your name. For just a moment, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed. It's a sacred moment. But if that was your prayer, then this is the greatest moment of your life. And as a church, a family of faith, we want to help with what's next. And so first, if you would, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up for a moment as a statement, a physical statement of the spiritual commitment you just made. And know that as a family of faith, we honor that and celebrate it with you. You can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.